Welcome back. As promised, we want to pick up where we left off with some reflections on masculinity and femininity. And if you were here a little while ago and you heard the second song Randy sang, you understand why this is for you. Not quite. There are a lot of distorted notions of what it means to really be a man and as well as to really be a woman. We want to think together about this today, this afternoon, once again under the life-giving authority of God's Word. I mentioned earlier that the nature of our subject matter uh, today is a bit risky um, in as much as exploring this question seems invariably to involve us in stepping on toes, uh, pushing on sore spots, and proving to be provocative, although not always intentionally. In part, this is because of the timely nature of these questions. But in part, it's also a reflection of just how central these questions are to human life in general and to the distinctive witness the church brings to the world under the authority of God's inerrant and inspired word and with its commitment to salvation only in Jesus Christ. That said, sometimes we confuse these things all too easily so that a particular slant or version of masculinity and femininity becomes a standard for embracing the gospel or not, for being faithful in the world or not, uh, for being faithful to the call and cost of discipleship or not. Well, before I come in with uh, a criticism of that way of thinking, I'd like to affirm it. I'd like to affirm the idea that getting this right matters for our witness to the world regarding the gospel and to one another as well. And maybe for that reason, I think we all should be willing to step on the proverbial toe of even dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ in insisting that some of the conventional assumptions about what this looks like are not only mistaken, but frankly counterproductive for this very thing we all agree is important to do. Bear witness faithfully to Christ in the world such as it is. Unfortunately, maybe tragically, much of the rhetoric surrounding real, biblical especially, masculinity and femininity derives very little from the scriptures themselves uh, and in certain places is wholly incompatible with the scriptures. There are many reasons why this particular ideological program has proven effective and successful, though. There are political reasons. There are economic reasons, not only in terms of what the economy looks like now, but in the history of economics as well. Our transition from one kind of industry to another, our transition away historically, big picture, uh, from a domestic a focus for our industry and for our commerce to one that now needs to find a place, meaningful place, 
for the household in an overall economy. There are other cultural and frankly sometimes theological reasons for the attractiveness of some of the destructive, uh, destructive uh, proposals out there. Um, I'm not particularly uh, persuaded that the scale way of looking at the panoply of options is particularly helpful, that there are some right and some left. Uh, that might work for political arguments. I don't think it works very well here. But to explain how that's the case, I think it's important for us to focus attention uh, for two reasons I will mention, especially on destructive distortions concerning biblical masculinity, uh, and then by way of that, biblical femininity. The first reason is that destructive models of biblical masculinity, which I'll go on to describe very shortly, function very much as a protest movement functions. And here's the thing about protest movements, if you're a student of them historically at all. Protest, protest movements work because there is something true at work in them. There's some legitimate reason to be concerned, if not outright outraged and upset, about something going on. There's an actual issue. Very few protest movements that have gained any traction whatsoever uh, have done so without the slightest hint of, of meaningful connection with reality. Most are reacting to something real. But protest movements, in the nature of the case, while reacting to something real, almost without exception, distort that real problem and cannot commend a compelling alternative. The alternative commended is sometimes worse than the ill supposedly remedied by it. And that is very much the case when we're talking about biblical masculinity and femininity. One reason for its attraction, and here's our second consideration, especially within Reformed context, if I may step on those toes, is because we take the family seriously. We take sex and gender seriously. We believe marriage matters. We believe childhood is a good thing, and children are a blessing of the Lord, and many of them are many blessings. We believe in the goodness and spiritual value of the ordinary life, of labor, of sacrifice, of being a man and being a woman. These things matter, and when the world is going for our throats on these things, we find attractive those who are willing to go to the carpet and lose much for the sake of, ostensibly, being a man and being a woman, guarding and protecting the integrity of marriage, guarding and protecting the integrity of the family, children being a good thing, and on and on we may go. There's something attractive about that way of looking at the problem and its solution because it's, there's something true about the protest. We need to be extremely careful, however, brothers and sisters, that with the discernment that looks a lot like the shrewdness, the interrogative mode of life, which asks questions and doesn't jump on board at the, at the, at the initial suggestion of a like-minded um, concern. We need to show the discernment that recognizes that this is also true of every single heresy in the history of the church. 
that the only reason they proved attractive is because they said a lot of very true things. And the enemy does not give us a completely rival system. He counterfeits the true one. He counterfeits the authentic one. So when I say I'm concerned about some of the prevailing models and ideas at work close to home, more so than I am in some ways, about the ideas and models and programs further from home, it's because it is so much more effective to swindle our beloved brothers and sisters by way of very good counterfeits than it is to try to sell someone looking for beef a shrimp. We'll eat both, I think, in due course. One is not like the other, and the danger is therefore far lower. But when one is very much like the other, it's for that reason that much more dangerous. The problem I am asking us to recognize is the problem common in our context, generally speaking, of linking up evangelical male machismo with accusations of the feminization of the church and of the world at large. Both reflect dangerously inadequate and biblically underdetermined notions of both masculinity and femininity. The risk here is one especially facing not each other as adults and as parents, where by and large we, we get what's going on. There are exceptions, of course. But what I'm hoping will get under your skin just a little bit today is the risk posed to our children. The risk posed to our teenagers and more than a few young adults who are pressured to see themselves as less than fully man or woman based on checklists and burdens which Christ never called us to bear and which in fact obscure the beauty of the biblical nature of both masculinity and femininity. We are much in need of resolute, strong, clear, and relentlessly faithful speech and deed in the world and culture, yes, but also within the life of the church. Recognizing that the world at large against which the church does stand increasingly seeks not merely to rival but to absolutely destroy all that the church confesses and holds dear related to these things. But not all reactions are equal. Not all are helpful. Not all are biblical. Sometimes we create a monster in response to the real monsters that exist. As I read the scriptures with whatever benefit there may be of 14 years of pastoring a congregation where some of these issues were especially pronounced and sensitive, and of working for nearly 20 years in contexts of domestic violence, spousal abuse, child abuse, and of working with seminary students as well as professors, church sessions of elders and ministers, and others, if there's any benefit at all in gleaning from the deep dive of research and thinking and speaking on these things for almost two decades now, 
it would be that I really don't see the notion of biblical masculinity as a set of exclusively or peculiarly male traits that all Christian men are expected to exhibit, at least not in the form far too many brothers and sisters of Christ of mine appear to expect in Scripture. What then do we see? That men are called to reflect God's character. Remember glory from our early talk, earlier talk? Men are called to put God's character on display and to perform his will in certain relational contexts and in certain ways dictated by those contexts. Not as men generally, but as sons, as husbands, as fathers, as brothers, as men who are friends to men and to women. They are called to do this with love, with self-control, with humility, with courage, and with faithfulness. And if we're going to use this language, let's use it here. This is biblical masculinity, which is more zealous to go after the temptation to pornography than it is to, to put on a posture and display of commanding his children and maybe even his wife around. Women are also called to put God's character on display, to reflect his character and to perform his will in different relational contexts and ways, that is to say, not as women in general, but within the terms of the biblical world, as daughters, as wives, as mothers, as sisters, as friends to men and to women. To do this with love, to do this with self-control, to do this with humility, courage, and faithfulness. Again, if we're going to talk about it and use such language, this is biblical femininity. Women cannot exercise biblical masculinity, not because they lack certain virtues or traits of character, but simply because they aren't men and do not have the same callings men do. They share with men a fundamental calling in common, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, in the language of the Westminster Catechisms. But the providential, ordered relations of a man's and of a woman's life are not accidental to what it means to be a man or a woman. They are the target contexts in which the content of one's masculinity or femininity are meaningful. While there are general differences in areas of strength between the genders, there isn't a particular set of traits that either men or women have a monopoly upon. I will go on to qualify that, but note my language. There isn't a particular set of traits that either men or women have a monopoly upon. The vocations of men do tend, appropriately, to focus on certain strengths over others and maybe vocations for which men are, as a general rule, general, not without exceptions, more apt on account of their natural capabilities, which themselves are not insignificant or irrelevant, and no less connected to God the Creator 
and his design in and for us. The same thing can be said about the vocations and activities of women relative to peculiarly female strengths. But the fundamental virtues at work are shared ones, though these virtues will be inflected or conjugated or refracted, if you will, in meaningfully different ways, depending on the context and role in which one finds oneself. As such, the measure of a man's masculinity is not his machismo, but his faithfulness in living out his vocation in the context in which God has placed him. The stubborn faithfulness to press on where it is extremely difficult to do so. In fidelity to one's wife, in fidelity to one's children, in fidelity to one's congregation, in fidelity to all those others whom God has placed them in ordered relationship to. Rather than to resist the call of responsibility in these contexts of life, principally in the area of personal, private self-control, but in the forms of self-control that are also more general, a man proves or disproves his actual strength. He proves or disproves his willingness to embrace being a man as a vocation and not only a biological marker. There are, in fact, for this reason, despite what John Wayne suggests, and I'm not saying he's not a man, I'm only saying he's not the only one. There are innumerable different forms that biblical masculinity can take. Because these forms, in keeping with the teaching of Herman Bavink, if that helps anybody, because these forms are conditioned by natural traits which are gifts of God and by traits of character formed by our particular stories in history, our particular experiences and our relationship to them, our failures as well as our successes, our character, our contexts, and the particular vocations that we have, which of course change over the years. And so, for instance, we should recognize that the fact that a man may lack the traits suiting him for some role does not necessarily make him less of a man, especially if we are to recognize the biblical teaching concerning the organic relationships all human beings have for one, with one another. And that to think of an individual man meeting or failing to meet some culturally generated standard of masculinity is in fact to work with an individualism at odds with the fundamental truth of the gospel. And that is that, is that there is one man who as the true man makes men of all joint to him. And that in the distributed gifts spread out throughout all of humanity as one organism, it is a good thing rather than problematic that not all men are the same. And those differences are not obstacles to harmony or virtue. They're the very conditions of it. God does not call all of us to be alpha male warrior types. Nor does he call all of us to be refined and cultured scholars or musicians. God does not call all of us to be both alpha male warrior types and refined and cultured scholars or musicians. 
These are valid ways, among many others, of living out biblical masculinity. But before you give your teenage boy a burden he will never be able to bear, and a criterion that not only will frustrate him for the rest of his life, but potentially destroy your daughter-in-law to come, stop getting so hung up about biblical masculinity that you cannot appreciate the beautiful and incredible variation within men and within women that does not, in fact, threaten to confuse them. The rich potential that this distribution of gifts across humanity means for different forms of biblically faithful, life-enhancing complementarity in the context of marriage and in other human relations. This is one of many reasons why the bizarre tendency in our time among many young evangelicals today to confuse biblical masculinity with acting tough is so very unhealthy. It fails to notice just how far removed from the macho model of biblical masculinity many central biblical characters would therefore fall from. Jacob, for instance, who would now need to be defined on this machismo standard as a soft-skinned mother's mummy's boy who cooked an awesome lentil stew but didn't leave home or marry until his 70s. Jacob became an incredible man, but this process was less about becoming a manly, macho man as it was learning tenacious perseverance, self-control, and faithfulness through suffering, through weakness, through failure in the positions where God had placed him. The great men of the Bible are renowned as great men. And let us hear the summons of the Apostle Paul in Philippians and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere to honor certain men and not to suggest that the only way to do justice to the distribution of gifts is to suggest there are not men who are standout honorable men, but to remember why it is we're to honor them. Why are the great men of the Bible renowned? Because they won the strongest man contest? The pie-eating contest? Is there one of those today? No. They are renowned in in a way that should remind us of what we've said already. For their patient suffering, their perseverance, their humility, their self-sacrifice, their faith, their self-control, in service of others, traits which are far removed from the the kind of triumphalist and self-glorifying machismo that our society would have us look up to. The important thing to take away from a close reading of Scripture is just how many forms this virtue of manliness can take and in how many contrasting ways they are exemplified. You see, the tough men of Scripture are men who are broken down. Broken down by God and remade to fight the hardest battle of all, which proves not to be against the Philistines, but against his own sinful heart, to gain mastery over himself. The resulting masculinity is a chastened and a humble one, quite unlike the self-glorifying masculinity to which many would have us aspire the kind that our culture is so preoccupied with. 
the kind for which God has apparently very little time or patience. In stark contrast to machismo, this is a masculinity most fully exemplified in sober and seasoned elder men rather than young and cocky braggadocios. You want to look for the real men in your congregation? Look older than your teens and your young strapping men. To those who have seen it, have been through it, who look like it, here or there, and are better for it, better, more fruitful, more faithful, Look older to find wisdom, which is real strength. The important thing to appreciate is just how many forms this virtue takes and how many contrasting ways it's exemplified. The masculinity exemplified in sober and seasoned elder men is refracted through their own roles and contexts, usually over many years which are precisely the same virtues that tend to mark out the great women of God, not because they are identical, but because this is what makes godly women godly women. I am not suggesting anything like an ethical unisex model. I'm instead saying being a real man is something a woman can never do or be and should never aspire to. Being a real woman is something a man can never do nor should he ever aspire to. How then do we understand the difference between these two? The option that I am trying to burn to the ground in a few minutes that we have this afternoon is one which confuses not only our immediate culture's notions of real masculinity and femininity, which incidentally are still there with us, though in their negative form, by what everyone agrees we are against, not necessarily what it was decades earlier, everyone thinking this is what we're for. They're still there, but in negative form. I'm thinking also of this set of expectations and stereotypes that actually goes at least as far back as the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament church, which had almost identical stereotypes as the one that you're familiar with today, against which background the scriptures end up proving very powerful in destabilizing and critiquing those assumptions in favor of authentic masculinity and femininity. If it's not going to be these cultural expectations of masculinity and femininity, what then will be our reliable guide to thinking faithfully about this? And especially if if faithfully thinking about this does not deny the often valuable contributions Natural, cultural expectations of being a man or a woman can also commend us. Here's a strange idea. One which I have to say I've not yet seen in print. And I'm kind of waiting for someone to say it. Because I don't want to write it. What if we were to take seriously when God represents himself as either fatherly or motherly in the Bible? And infer from that, this must be something of, if not everything, that belongs to masculinity and femininity. The first thing I might need to say then is that this is true. That God does in fact represent himself, name himself in fact as father in scripture, something that is more conventional and familiar to us. 
but also characterize his relationship to his people and sometimes others as fatherly. And that when he does so, he pulls these images out of what fatherliness looks like. It's why it's meaningful for his people to be told he is a fa- like a father to them. That they will know this means at least these things. What if we were to look at those things and infer, well, okay, I guess, I mean, I guess that means at least this much belongs to real masculinity. But what's also true is that God, while never naming himself mother, extremely important, does represent himself often as motherly. And when he does so, pulls certain characteristics or habits or practices into the picture, which would therefore give us biblical, even theological, capital T, grounds for saying at least these things must belong to really being a woman. What if we were to do that? The Bible sometimes reminds us that what we know in the goodness of creation and providence as a man and a woman, as a father and as a mother, as a husband and as a wife, are meaningful because they derive, as we said earlier, they derive from something true of God himself, but not in creaturely form. God does not have sex, a gender of that sort. He is not a sexed God. This is what makes him different from the gods of the Canaanites who were either male or female and worshipped accordingly. No, he does, not, he does not have a body. And so he is not either male or female in the same sense we mean that for human beings. But he is not unrelated to it either. We are made in his image precisely because he is the most fatherly reality of which all fathers are merely a picture. But not because he's a father like we are, but at best because we are fatherly like he is. The best, most godly woman is a flicker of something true uniquely in the God who is not female, but whose motherliness is the reality that accounts for what we think of as motherliness. To be in his image is a character matter, not only an ontological or being matter. And sometimes the Bible reminds us of this by combining male and female imagery together in God's self-description. Psalm 27. If my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Well, that will be helpful to you if you know that in him you have everything you ultimately need from a father and a mother. Job 38. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the hoarfrost of heaven? The answer is God. But then that means God is giving birth. Well, yes and no. It's only a metaphor you're quick to say. But remember what metaphors do. They're more real than non-metaphorical language. He is so truly, ultimately motherly, the reality of God explains why mothers giving birth is meaningful. Not because God is female, but because women are made in the image of a God who is perfectly motherly. The Song of Moses that closes Deuteronomy starts by picturing God as Father. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and senseless people? Verse 6. Is not he your Father who created you, who made you and established you? But then it adds mother to the thought. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, and I won't forget you. Isaiah 42, 
The Lord goes forth like a soldier, like a warrior. He stirs up his fury. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Self-control. But now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. In Matthew's gospel, you might remember the scene in chapter 23. Jesus is there on the side of the hill overlooking Jerusalem and he's just devastated. And he looks out at the group and in Luke 13 as well, he looks out at the city of of those who are rejecting his ministry and his word and he pictures himself as a mother hen. Oh, if I could just gather you under my wings. Underlining the motherliness of his hen-like activity. How he is not a cockerel, if you will. Anselm and other early medieval and modern Christians saw how often the writers of the New Testament, Peter, Paul, the writer to the Hebrews, regularly pictured themselves as mothers of the churches that they founded. We might think fathers, that makes more sense. Mothers of the churches they founded. 1 Corinthians 3, Galatians 4, Hebrews 5, 1 Peter 2. Other passages could be mentioned. Such an understanding of God's motherliness and fatherliness where in distinct but meaningful ways certain character or virtue traits are predominating. On the male side, matters of self-controlled, real strength, deployed for the preservation, the protection, as well as the nurture and care of those for whom one is responsible. And on the feminine side, nurture, strength, remember the mother bear image, not to be forgotten, strength, ferocity of devotion with a long view for good, and for care. These are meaningful descriptors of what God himself intends in the virtue complex for a man or for a woman. What we don't have in the scriptures is what we do find everywhere outside of them at every time in history. Authority and discipline are stressed for the man with strong and frequent overtones of father language as language for severity, sternness, authoritarianism, where set opposite such a father who is unapproachable because of the sternness and ferocity of his ways, the power at his disposal is the mother, viewed as loving and compassionate, Children are assumed to respect and fear the father, but love the mother affectionately even after they're married. As we will see in the Lord's Day tomorrow, this is precisely the vision of things that Ephesians and 1 Peter and other places unambiguously upsets, critiques, and remakes for the church and family of God. This belongs to the such were some of you, not this is how you're supposed to be. Ironically, the tradition within Roman Catholicism of Mariology, which focused especially on prayers to Mary 
as more effective than prayers directly to Jesus is related to this cultural phenomenon. Jesus has all power and authority. He's therefore just a little bit unapproachable. But you know who's kind and tender and compassionate? Mary. If you ask Mary, she can talk to Jesus. She can soften him a little bit. You'll be more successful that way. No kidding, this was a big part of the development of medieval Mariology. And unwittingly, many of our nearest and dearest, even in the generally reformed evangelical world, have created the conditions for a revival of that kind of distortion of the doctrine of God and of Christ, where bare power is confused with masculinity, unapproachableness, disciplinarian authoritarianism, and sternness, where you need the now, by contrast, softness and approachability of the feminine, which is now defined absent of the ferocious mother bear kind of strength, perseverance, and fortitude to get at the safety you need in your life. You need to come by a new kind of Mary, a very destructive model, and one to be concerned about. Now, perhaps the most developed father language in Jesus' speech reminds us of these features in one snapshot, snapshot scene, which with, with which we'll close today as we look forward, our Lord willing, to more, more time in God's word tomorrow. The father talk of the Gospels has fathers feeding and clothing their children rather than outsourcing their care to others giving gifts to both good and bad children alike in Matthew 5, forgiving rather than punishing in Matthew 6 and Mark 11. In Luke 6, though the Father does judge, he does so in love rather than anger that is uncontrolled. The Father deals with infants and little ones in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's. The Divine Father acts in ways that often counteract the ancient world's cultural stereotype and fit more the stereotype of the mother than they do expectations of fatherly behavior. No more so than in the Lucan parable of a father with two sons. The parable tells both of a father's love, which continues to pursue his child even when he has been rejected by him, even when his generosity has been abused, not flailing out with righteous indignation, but brokenhearted pursuing the beloved son and suffering many ignominies and hurts to do so. In self-control, not being self-serving. It also, by contrast, tells the resentment of the good son. In the light of cultural stereotypes, ancient or modern, the story is nothing less than astonishing. In the ancient context, the father breaks almost all of cultural expectations, even the requirements of his role as father to welcome the return of his errant son. The father's behavior, as Jesus tells it, was also inappropriate on ancient terms. In fact, it seems this parable only works because the father is breaking every known cultural stereotype. His agreement to the son's proposal to dispense out his portion of the inheritance while the father is still alive automatically dishonors the father and suggests he is what no father ever wants to be confused with being, weak. He would have been cut off from his family at large. And the father's statement that he had been dead before being alive again would suggest that this is in fact envisaged as actually happening. 
the son has basically died to his family by going this route. But as far as the father is concerned, that makes him a great prospect for resurrection. A great option for newness of life. And he has the option to be part of that or to prevent it. And it will come down to self-control. The undignified act of running to greet his son is still shocking in ancient Near Eastern contexts. Yet just don't do that. But friends, this is exactly what the scriptures commend to us over and over and over again. The gospel is a many-pictured, many-faceted, many-splendored event of what just isn't done, being done, not at the expense of our masculinity and femininity, but precisely to insist on its actual content so that as man and woman together without being the same, the many varied splendor and beauty of that harmony in the world of creation and providence will faithfully point to the many varied splendor of the character of God himself, where those who have plenty of power at their disposal voluntarily humble themselves and choose not to deploy it for the higher end of the love that pursues and seizes upon the beloved and in so doing puts the character of God on display. Much more needs to be said and I'm hoping I'll be extended four more hours tonight to do that. But at least this much should be remembered. Protests recognize a real problem. They do not commend a satisfactory alternative. The world of the scriptures is countercultural for some versions of conservatism as well for liberalism. Do not hijack the gospel to fund your cultural conservative concerns. Go precisely in the other direction. Let the gospel hijack your commitment to being everything you are called to be in the different ways you are who you are, a man of men and a woman of women for the glory of God and for the good of his church. There is a better way, and it is not on offer anywhere other than in the scriptures of the living God. Go there courageously and prove to be a real man and a real woman as well. God bless. We're out of time. I'll pray for us, and then we'll go. Oh, Heavenly Father and gracious God, how thankful we are for the good news of the gospel, which includes, among many things, that we are able to address you, humble children though we are, as our Heavenly Father, and know that in doing so, we are laying claim to who you are as the perfect provider, protector, governor, and king whose power is no threat but instead is a ground of confidence that everything you and your perfect wisdom and love have determined to do, you can and you will do. May the safety that we know in your character be reflected in the safety and the life and the encouragement we extend to one another. 
as men or as women in humble but zealous pursuit of everything you have called us to be and to do as the people we are in the wisdom of your creation and providence. Grant us that wisdom to hold on to all that is good in every direction from which we hear it and to flee with strength and vigor from all that is evil, from wherever it comes. And we ask for that grace and strength, for that courage, in Jesus' name. Amen.